Welcome to We Are Neighbors podcast, hosted by myself, Jolie Angel Robinson, president and CEO of Housing Forward, along with my amazing colleague, (laughs) Rebecca Hickam, director of coordinated access for Housing Forward. We Are Neighbors is a space for us to center the experiences and voice of those who have lived experience and talk to experts on the entire topic of homelessness, the who, how, what, and really dig into policies and practices that will help us end homelessness. We want to do that. Absolutely. We'll have a new episode each month. So join us as we explore the issue of homelessness. We look forward to continuing to raise awareness, support advocacy, and move us all to action that we can take together to make the experience of homelessness rare, brief, and non-recurring. Every neighbor deserves to have a safe, stable place to call home. We are all neighbors joining in the work to secure that basic human right. You all didn't hear me clap and cheer for our own team, but I'm going to do it again. (laughs) Such tremendous work has happened. This impact video was phenomenal to watch, like in retrospect, to see all that has happened over this past year at Housing Forward and with the All Neighbors Coalition is truly a special moment. For me to be standing up here to look out in the audience and see so many of my friends and peers that I really admire and that I have learned from over my time being at Housing Forward is a special moment as well. Um, If you know anything about me, I am probably going to go off script more than I stay on script. So I just appreciate the grace and mercy of everyone. Uh, Welcome to our 2023 State of Homelessness Address. If you don't know me, I've done a poor job already, but I am Jolie Angel Robinson, President and CEO of Housing Forward. Okay, yay! Was that my Metro Relief, friends? Be still, my heart. We are excited to welcome so many of you personally, in person, and we have a whole slew of individuals that are joining us virtually. It's been several years since we've been able to come together in person for our State of Homelessness Address. I mean, that was pre-pandemic times. And so it truly is special to be in person with each and every one of you as we are hosting this. Many thanks to the Communities Foundation of Texas for the use of this beautiful, beautiful space today. Thank you and your ongoing partnership and support is amazing. The State of Homelessness Address allows us an opportunity to share information about our homeless response system. Not just the work of Housing Forward, but the entire homeless response system has done a lot of strategic work and transformation over the past several years. It is our t- uh, today is our time to share the trends as we see in the point in time count data year after year, additional data that we track all year long, and talk about our future strategies for ending homelessness in our community. We want to extend a special thank you to our presenting sponsor of today's program, McNaniman Family Foundation. Give it a hand, please give them a hand. And our additional generous sponsors for today's event. You will get a chance to hear directly from Casey McNaniman and his passion around serving our neighbors experiencing homelessness. I do, she took it out of my script and I wrote it right back in. I do have to say a huge thank you to Sarah Craig, our VP of Development and Communication. (laughs) 
all that you see today really is her brainchild. Um, I heard someone talk about the days of old, Housing Forward, MDHA was our previous name and what the state of homelessness address looked like. David Gruber is our on-staff historian and he talked about the old days of Metro Dallas Homeless Alliance and, and hosting of the state of homelessness address. Really the transformation that we've seen as an organization, we went through that uh, naming and branding change at the end of last year, but all that you're seeing really is the brainchild of such an amazing worker and, and teammate that we have in Sarah Craig. Next, you'll be hearing from our Housing Forward Board Chair, Peter Brodsky, and our All Neighbors Coalition Board Chair, Carol Lucky. We are thankful to have such passionate leaders for our organization and our community. Welcome to the State of Homelessness Address. We are grateful for your attendance and commitment to the neighbors we serve each day. I'm Carol Lucky, CEO of the North Texas Behavioral Health Authority and Chair of the All Neighbors Coalition Board. Our All Neighbors Coalition represents over 130 organizations that make up our homeless response system and is a unique space in the nonprofit community. We regularly and actively engage with each other to ensure a system that centers our unhoused neighbors and makes a significant impact in our community. Our All Neighbors Coalition Board is truly representative of the Dallas and Collin County communities. It is made up of community leaders, city and county representatives, and our homeless response system leaders. I want to send a special thank you to all the members of the All Neighbors Coalition for all the ways you ensure our system works effectively and collaboratively together to make the experience of homelessness rare, brief, and non-recurring for all of our neighbors. Good morning. I'm Peter Brodsky, the board chair for Housing Forward. Unfortunately, I'm unable to attend this morning's State of Homelessness address in person but I couldn't miss the opportunity to share a few thoughts and words of thanks. This is my third year of presenting at the State of Homelessness Address, and I would like to appreciate how far we've come as a community while still acknowledging how far we have to go. Since the beginning of 2021, we have revamped the boards of Housing Forward and the All Neighbors Coalition, in addition to coming up with new names for both organizations to reflect our new direction. We have retooled our entire staff, including recruiting Jolie Angel Robinson as our leader, as well as her incredibly capable team. We have attracted over $100 million of new funding to our system from the city of Dallas, Dallas County, Dallas Housing Authority, the philanthropic community, and the HUD department. And we have increased the capacity of our continuum of care to house our unhoused neighbors more quickly and sustainably. We have better data, more buy-in from the organizations that make up the All Neighbors Coalition and better partnerships with local governments in Dallas and Collin counties. All of this in the face of an unprecedented increase in housing costs, a pandemic, labor shortages, and other macro challenges. We have a long way to go. Too many of our neighbors remain unhoused, but we are better prepared and better funded than ever to face these challenges. Jolie and her team will provide the specific numbers to document our progress, but I wanted to zoom out for a moment to reflect on how far we have come. And none of this has happened in a vacuum. It has been a true team effort. 
We are grateful for the individuals who give countless hours to ensure we are making the best decisions, our boards of Housing Forward and All Neighbors Coalition. I also want to acknowledge the significant support of the philanthropic community and the many funders that have been at the forefront of supporting our system's transformation. I always want to shout out the Meadows Foundation and the Funders Co Collaborative, whose initial investment catalyzed our system's transformation. To all funders, your belief in the work that could be done to house our most vulnerable population and your ongoing leadership in funding and advocating for permanent solutions to ensure each neighbor has a safe, stable place to call home is worthy of its own recognition and we thank you. We also wanna specifically thank the sponsors of today's program who you see on your screen. We are grateful to your commitment to this work and the state of homelessness addressed today. Lastly, we wanna thank all of you for your continued commitment to Housing Forward and all of the organizations who make up the All Neighbors Coalition as we work to resolve a complex issue in a challenging environment. Now, a special message from our presenting sponsor, Casey McManaman. Hello, and thank you for attending the ninth State of Homelessness Address. My name is Casey McManaman. My wife, Megan, and I are proud that the McManaman Family Fund of the Communities Foundation of Texas is serving as the sponsor of this event again this year. The State of Homelessness Address allows us all to come together, understand the trends in our annual data, show our support for the entire homeless response system, hear about the work to house our neighbors experiencing homelessness, and celebrate the incredible progress of our community. I have been involved in serving our unhoused neighbors and supporting the entire homeless response system for more than 12 years, including building a barber shop on the campus of the Bridge Homelessness Recovery Center that has delivered more than 30,000 free haircuts, and there will be a lot more. Was a founder of the Citizen Homelessness Commission created by Mayor Rawlings and representing council member Gates and District 13. And have been the board chair of, and fortunately a strong partner with Dr. David Woody, president and CEO of the bridge. As a current board member of the bridge, I have seen firsthand the tremendous commitment and dedication of case managers, outreach workers, executives, and all staff in serving our neighbors experiencing homelessness. Their heart for this work is immense, and I applaud their daily efforts. As a community, we have made significant investments and today we will hear the progress towards a larger goal of ending homelessness. Your commitment, time, participation, and contributions are the fuel of collaboration and element of Housing Forward. Every neighbor deserves a safe, stable place to call home. I hope you will join me in lending our support our neighbors who need us most today in the coming year.
Thank you. Wow. As Peter mentioned, many thanks to our Housing Forward team, our All Neighbors Coalition for your leadership in the homeless response system. Um, I send a huge personal thank you to the staff and leadership at Housing Forward and all that you do and for your daily commitment to this work. If our board and staff members could please stand up, please, please, please just stand up where you are. Please, everyone give these folks an amazing round of applause. I'm, I'm scanning to see if anyone tried to sit down because I know you by name, right? I know you. Lajana, did you stand up? Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Secondly, I want to recognize any of our elected officials. If we have any elected official, please stand and be recognized at this time. Thank you all for joining us. I appreciate that. One of the most important aspects about today is reflecting on our past year and sharing our progress toward our community goals of significantly reducing chronic unsheltered homelessness, ending veteran homelessness, and significantly reducing youth and family homelessness. An important way we track our progress towards these goals is through our point in time count or pick count as you'll hear us say. The point in time count is a large scale collaboration that brings together the cities and communities across Dallas and Collin counties. Along with many of the providers serving our unhoused neighbors, street outreach workers, and hundreds of community volunteers go out to conduct this comprehensive count of individuals and families experiencing homelessness. This happens each year. It provides the only estimate we have of both unsheltered and sheltered homelessness in our community and is therefore an important tool, but just one tool that's in our toolbox that allows us to measure year-on-year -year trends and our progress towards achieving those community-wide goals. The data is truly intended to provide insight into how well our homeless response system is performing and our capacity overall to assist people in quickly exiting homelessness. Our point in time data also helps us understand what strategies and interventions are working and where additional investments year over year need to continue to make progress. Last year's findings showed that while we had a slight reduction in overall homelessness, the picture of homelessness among our most vulnerable neighbors was concerning. On your tables, you have that one pager that also provides the numbers that I'll be going over today. Chronic homelessness doubled between 2020 and 2022. Chronic homelessness represents individuals who have a chronic disability and have experienced long episodes of homelessness, which exacerbate declines in mental and physical health. Chronic homelessness also made up a growing share of our unsheltered population last year, which increased to 40% in 2022, up from 11% in 2020. This trend was a result of major disruptions to street outreach, its outreach and services during the pandemic, and our limited supportive housing options. 
This was a clear signal that we needed a target intervention and solution-focused responses for our neighbors experiencing unsheltered homelessness, the most visible form of homelessness. Through the Dallas Real-Time Initiative, the All Neighbors Coalition really seized on a tremendous, probably once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to catalyze public and private funding and scale necessary housing resources in alignment with our goal to significantly reduce chronic unsheltered homelessness. Over the last year, the Dallas Real-Time Initiative provided coordinated outreach to people living in encampments, yay to the encampment and street outreach team, and brought permanent supportive housing options to neighbors living in unsheltered locations who otherwise may never have received assistance. We do not take that work lightly, and I cannot say enough kudos and thank you to our street outreach team that is out every day in our encampments. This effort also leveraged over 700 new housing vouchers to expand permanent supportive housing options for people with greater health care needs who need ongoing support to maintain their housing. Today, we are truly thrilled to report that these investments are producing results. This year, on the night of the point in time count, there were 4,244 individuals experiencing homelessness in Dallas and Collin counties, which is the lowest in five years. That deserves a round of applause. Between 2022 and 2023, there was a 14% decline in unsheltered homelessness. This decline in unsheltered homelessness is reflected across subpopulations. With decreases in unsheltered homelessness among veterans down 9% over last year in families. Additionally, we saw a sharp 32% decline in chronic homelessness overall, which gives us a signal that the investments we made specifically are working to serve our population. These findings underscore the importance of continuing to invest in permanent rather than temporary solutions. Homelessness decreased in areas where targeted rehousing investments were made. However, there were increases in the number of people staying in temporary housing and emergency beds as many of our providers were able to return to pre-pandemic levels of service. Increases in the number of people staying in temporary and crisis-based environments drove an overall increase in the count among veterans, up 21% over last year, individuals and families up 15% over last year, and youth up 18% over last year. This demonstrates that when individuals and families seek assistance from the homeless response system, we must be equipped to offer immediate housing solutions to quickly end their experience with homelessness. We talk often about the increased pressure many of our direct service providers are experiencing at their front door over the past year or so. When we prioritize placement into permanent housing and make wraparound supports available, we will move the needle on homelessness and help thousands of households avoid the trauma of long episodes in crisis. Increasing temporary solutions does not solve homelessness for our vulnerable populations. 
We must strive to keep people with families and friends or in their current homes while we help them resolve their housing crisis. We talk quite a bit about the upstream solutions to homelessness. Our point in time count data continues to reveal striking racial disparities in neighbors experiencing homelessness. While black households make up only 20% of our general population in Dallas and Collin counties, they represent 59% of our unhoused population. This imbalance did get slightly worse since last year. And overall, we know this is a byproduct of systemic inequities that continue to perpetuate disparities in areas such as income, wealth, housing, healthcare, and incarceration rates, which we know directly impacts our rates of homelessness. We are building a homeless response system and a rehousing system that seeks to equitably house and serve our neighbors and helps our neighbors avoid the trauma of long episodes in crisis. The tremendous work being done by our direct service providers and staff alongside the new increased interventions we are bringing to our community this year and beyond, we will continue to make greater impacts on our ability to effectively and equitably serve our unhoused neighbors. Through a greater alignment of resources, enhanced partnerships, and a focus on racial equity, we are housing more people than ever before, which is demonstrated in the data we share today. Despite an acute housing affordability crisis, which many of you are working on and you feel the pinch of every day, fallout from the pandemic with eviction protections ending, many households faced with increasing economic hardships and evidence of more of our neighbors experiencing homelessness for the first time, our community continues to see downward trends in homelessness. The investments we have made as a community are having an impact. And until we curb the inflow into our system, we will continue to need investments to ensure we can maintain this level of progress. As I mentioned earlier in our address, we look forward to sharing additional ways we mark the health of our homeless response system. You all are gonna have some dynamic speakers that are way better than I am come up shortly. Hey everyone, I just wanna start by saying thank you to Johnny and Rochelle and Andrew and Timothy who shared your stories today. I think it's a good reminder. We're talking a lot about data today, but behind those numbers are real people, um, people that have endured a lot, including the trauma of losing a home uh, and who have thrived in spite of that. And the case managers, I'm tearing up a little bit if you couldn't tell. Um, and the homeless service providers who have given people um, the opportunity to rebuild their lives and move back into permanent housing. Um, excuse me. <laughs> so I am here to shift gears and we are um, going to, in this next segment, build on some of what Jolie talked about to kind of provide a little bit of a fuller picture of uh, the impact that our system is having. Jolie talked a little bit about the PIT data, but that's just one kind of measure of our progress. We look at a suite of other performance metrics to really kind of keep our finger on the pulse of the health of our system. And um, one of the key kind of critical markers of our success is our ability to bring in more dollars to fuel 
this big effort that we have underway, this big rehousing system that we've built through the through this collective impact of everyone in the room. Um, and so we secure new dollars by demonstrating that we have a system that's worth investing in, right? So if we can demonstrate that we're making progress and reducing numbers, um, that allows us to leverage more dollars. And this year has been a big, big year. Um, over the last three years, we've been transforming the way that we um, you know, deliver homeless services. And part of that was launching Dallas Real Time, as Jolie described, and the success of those efforts of our coordination and the transformation of our homeless response system um, has really brought in um, an unprecedented level of new both public and private resources uh, this year. And I want to name just a few of those big awards because I think they're going to have major impacts um, on our system over the course of the next year. The first is uh, and $1.25 million from the Bezos Foundation, the day one fund to tackle family homelessness. Uh, the Bezos Foundation selects a few communities each year who they feel are really um, trying out and testing innovative strategies for tackling family homelessness and needle moving strategies as they call it. And so they chose us um, for that award this year, which we're very excited about and will have a huge impact. Um, and hopefully we can leverage those dollars to bring in more funding to the family homeless system. The second big award, um, we found out in February that we were awarded 22.8 million dollars from HUD in a first of its kind um, grant award to tackle unsheltered homelessness specifically. This was a very competitive um, grant program. Only a handful of communities across the country received this funding and HUD prioritized these dollars. They said they wanted to fund communities that demonstrated they have a system that can reduce unsheltered homelessness and the right partnerships in place to fuel those efforts. And so a huge thank you to some of our partners who are in the room um, who contributed and partnered with us. Um, they wanted to see partnerships from housing agencies and healthcare agencies. And we had Dallas Housing Authority, Dallas County, Parkland, uh, North Texas Behavioral Health um, Authority come to the table to commit resources and a lot of energy in the planning for that, um, for that grant program. So we're very, very excited for that funding to come into the community to extend our efforts on unsheltered homelessness. The third big opportunity um, is our annual um, HUD funding that we get, which funds all the homeless services in our community, um, both renewal projects, so projects that have already been funded, but new projects coming into the community each year. This year, we were awarded $22 million, which was a 20% increase in our funding last year, which means we can expand our efforts, um, the, the amount of money, new money coming in was twice as much as the new money we received last year. So um, I think all of this really tells us based on what Jolie said and the new funding coming in, you know, we're showing progress and these new investments allow us just to continue to build on the success of those efforts. So. Um, I'm excited to introduce you to three of my team members who have been working 
around the clock, very, very hard to make all of those opportunities possible in our community, walking alongside all of our providers in the room today um, to not only design um, the programs that we're implementing, but also to support the implementation and leadership over those efforts. So uh, Trudy Hernandez is gonna start with, um, she, Trudy is our Director of Performance Management. She's gonna talk a little bit about some of those other performance metrics that we look at to um, keep our pulse on the health of our system uh, Rebecca Hickam is our director of our coordinated access system, and Rebecca is going to um, talk a little bit about, dig deeper into our unsheltered strategies and some of the encampment rehousing efforts that Jolie mentioned. And Luis Acuna Pilgrim is going to talk a little bit about where we are in Dallas real time and give you some exciting updates. So I'm going to pass it to Trudy. Sarah. Um, as Sarah said, I'm Trudy Hernandez, Director of Performance Management. Um, it's really exciting to hear all of the great things that are coming down the line, um, and we get to celebrate the successes that we had um, over the past year. So um, as Sarah mentioned, we really strive to look at several data points throughout the year to show um, the overall health of our system. Aligned with federal standards, the health of our system is measured across three metrics. Rare, meaning reducing the number of people experiencing homelessness. Brief, reducing the average length of time people are unhoused. And um, non-recurring, which means ensuring those individuals are um, not coming in and out in a cycle of homelessness and that we are actually building more solutions to connect permanent housing. So simply put, we as a system work to make homelessness, rare, brief, and non-recurring. Our partners in the room across Dallas and Collin County um, can probably attest that these are the, the measurements that we are constantly kind of looking at to measure that um, health of our system. Very soon, um, our community members will have access to this data um, on a regular basis. On our um, Housing Forward website, we'll be able to show um, and give a glimpse of our overall health on a regular basis. While the annual point in time count gives us a snapshot of overall trends of our unhoused population from year to year, as just mentioned, it's not the only measure we use to understand the condition of our system. In 2022, we were able to increase the number of neighbors we were able to move into housing as a system by 18%. That was thanks to the increased capacity offered through the Dallas Real Time rapid rehousing initiative, and the ability to bring in more case managers and other key staff. This means that those people that are experiencing homelessness um, are resolving their homelessness at a much quicker rate than ever before in our system. An additional marker we use to measure the health of our system is by tracking the number of days our neighbors spend searching for housing. We know that any length of time is too long for someone to experience homelessness, but over the last year, we were able to build out um, one of the critical tools to help decrease that number of time in housing search. Um, and uh, that is through the creation of our landlord engagement team. We live in one of two states in the country that are not landlords are not required to accept a housing voucher, regardless of if that voucher covers the full rent of that monthly payment. The challenge of finding landlords and property owners that accept housing vouchers slows down a housing placement when an unhoused neighbor is accepted for a housing voucher, but we can't find a unit that accepts that voucher. By investing in the creation of the landlord engagement team, we support our overall system through targeted relationship building and ongoing support between housing navigators, case managers, and landlords. This team is bringing new units to our system on a daily basis. 
With the addition of these housing units, we're reducing average number of days our neighbors are, are in a housing search. This helps make the experience of homelessness brief. Overall, this length of time has been reduced due to the addition of our housing forward landlord engagement team and their ability to gain access to additional units that are available to our system partners and neighbors. The other key marker for success um, for our community is when we speak about the homelessness being non-recurring. This ensures our neighbors who are placed in housing have the necessary support to ensure success, move, move towards self-sustainability and remain permanently housed. We know that our neighbors that are housed after living unsheltered for any period of time need that critical case management support to ensure that they can, they can remain successfully housed. Locally, we've been able to um, see a 92% population remain in housing after 12 months. That's compared to a national average of 87%. As a community, we've made remarkable progress toward ending homelessness, and we look forward to continuing to track, track that progress throughout the year. Now I'll hand it over to Rebecca. Good morning. I'm Rebecca Hickam and I serve as the director of the Coordinated Access System or CAS at Housing Forward. So my role at Housing Forward is to ensure that neighbors who enter our homeless response system are quickly identified and connected to the most appropriate intervention to effectively end their homelessness. Today, we are celebrating a reduction in the number of people who are experiencing unsheltered homelessness. A critical tool for helping us reduce unsheltered homelessness in our community is ensuring that we are able to identify our neighbors experiencing homelessness and help them quickly access resources to regain housing. So one of the most important tools for helping our neighbors who are unsheltered is through our coordinated street outreach work and encampment. This year, our system increased our encampment decommissioning efforts. Encampment decommissioning is a relationship-led strategy uh, facilitated by street outreach workers and supportive services and who help our neighbors connect with housing and supportive services, including intensive case management to ensure a successful transition into housing. We are actively partnering with the Office of Homeless Solutions with the City of Dallas and several homeless street outreach partners who you see on the slide here and a lot of which who are in this room. We prioritize encampment work based on the health and safety of our neighbors experiencing homelessness as well as the surrounding community. Encampment decommissioning is a powerful tool to help ensure our neighbors who have been experiencing homelessness, some for many years, can gain a successful reentry into housing with the supports that they need. Encampment decommissioning can take several weeks depending on the size of the community, but it is a critical tool in building trust with our neighbors who have been unhoused for long periods of time. So to date, we have closed 11 encampments and housed 148 neighbors. Yeah. We are currently working on our 12th encampment and largest encampment and are actively working with 79 neighbors who are in the rehousing process. Our work in Dallas has been unique and significant. 
We are leading the nation in our work with our unsheltered population. We have been featured in, uh, at several local and national conferences to discuss our efforts around reducing unsheltered homelessness through encampment decommissioning. In addition to our encampment work, we have increased our coordinated outreach strategy across Dallas and Collin counties. We are equipping our neighbors to equitably gain access to resources, and we are working with our local providers and a new data system to help streamline our neighbors to the most appropriate intervention, whether that's a quick exit to a quick exit from hopelessness through diversion, rapid rehousing for neighbors in need of temporary support or permanent supportive housing for our neighbors who will need ongoing support to maintain their housing. With this continued focus on increasing access equitably, we know we can make the experience of homelessness rare brief and non-recurring for neighbors across Dallas and Collin counties. Now I'll pass it off to my colleague, Louise. You don't want to stay up here, Sarah, with no. me? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. No, that's fine. Thank you. Uh, I work with some amazing uh, folks, so thank you for leading and supporting the efforts uh, that, and all the accomplishments that we've done uh, as well. So again, my name is Luisa Cunha Pilgrim. I am the Director of Housing Initiatives uh, for Housing Forward. In October of 2021, uh, Dallas and Collins counties uh, launched Dallas Real-Time Rapid Housing Initiative, or DIRTR, D-R-T-R-R, as well. This initiative aims to rehouse over 2,700 individuals experiencing homelessness. Our community leverage federal dollars, and housing vouchers from the American Rescue Plan Act, a one-time funding opportunity, and collected private funding of $10 million. In total, uh, they also were committed to, an, to a total commitment of, of $72 million. Dirty rehouses our neighbors through rapid rehousing utilizing temporary, and in some cases, permanent subsidies. Rapid rehousing is designed to quickly obtain housing for our neighbors, connect them with needed services like supportive case management and job training, increase their self-sufficiency and help them remain housed. This initiative has enabled us to increase our rapid housing intervention as well, as we're bringing an additional 80 case manager positions to our homeless response system. This initiative also enabled us to create a landlord engagement team that was mentioned earlier today. So sidebar, uh, this, this past a month, we were able to house 114 individuals alone. So, yes. This team has been critical, critical to the success of the Dallas Real-Time Initiative because of the tight housing market we have experienced uh, this past year, as well as the regulations regarding vouchers uh, in our state. To date, this program has housed 1,871 individuals. Rapid Rehousing relies on the support from our private and philanthropic community for flexible funds to ensure we can remove all barriers to housing. One of the key factors for the success of this program are the private funds raised for the FlexFund program, which eliminates those one-time fees, such as application fees, security deposits, pet deposits, so that we can end a person's homelessness. The FlexFund also ensures that our neighbors move into a home that has the basic furniture, and household items needed to make a home, a house feel like a home. We are grateful to our philanthropic partners 
in our community who have made this fund a reality. The Dallas Real-Time Initiative allowed us to build a more coordinated system which is producing results. As a community, we need to take these learnings and skill this model to continue to make progress. Um, we're about to do a panel, or we're gonna have a brief panel conversation just to kind of illuminate the why behind homelessness. There's something I do wanna call attention to and unpack just a little bit, and that is the work of the encampment decommissioning. Um, my, I'm, I was gonna say Yolanda, and then I was gonna say she doesn't want me to call her out, and then I'm gonna call her out again, so apologize, City Square friends. But City Square, Metro Relief, the Stew Pot, the Bridge, all of the names that you saw up there, I'm missing some and I apologize. The work that they do every day in encampments really moves at the speed of trust. Shannon and Downtown Dallas Inc., um, Hannah from our team, Alonzo from the City of Dallas Office of Homeless Solutions are those individuals that coordinate an eight to 12 plus week strategy to totally decommission encampments, not move people from one block off of Forest and 75 to a more hidden location so that you all don't see them when you leave Costco, but they're literally housing individuals, right, my Metro Relief friends, directly from encampments that many have been in. You heard one gentleman said six years, I think it was, it was our, our, our woman that was served, six years without assistance, without a place to go, without someone, they may have been engaged regularly, but we did not have our system working effectively enough together to ensure that that individual was engaged on the front end. They had to build trust. Many of our unhoused neighbors have felt the disastrous impact of, of systems that aren't working for them and with them. Moving at the speed of trust is critically important. And I just, I just had to say yay to all of the amazing work that's happening. It is not light. And I know we talked about it like in the, in the speed of talking about all the work that we're doing, but I do have to illuminate how tremendously amazing that work is. Come on, panelists. Hello, we're getting all our mics on. Look at these fabulous people. I have an honor of working alongside. I appreciate you for joining us. We have shared uh, about the incredible work of our system. We've talked about the state of homelessness. We've talked about the state of our system as well. We wanna ensure that we include this full picture. Many of us that are working in this space get a lot of questions about the why of homelessness. So we did wanna take this opportunity to unpack it just a little bit. I wanna welcome Dr. Cullum Clark, my dear friend, director of the Bush Institute SMU Economic Growth Initiative, Matt Roberts, chief operating officer at North Texas Behavioral Health Authority, and Akena Mogbo, Chief Housing Officer. I say it wrong every time, my friend, I apologize. Thank you all for joining us today. Please give it up for them. Uh, this first question for Akena. Uh, the longer I'm in this work, I know that there are many misperceptions about why people experience homelessness or who our unhoused neighbors really are. We are often asked the simple, like for a simple answer, boil it down to why our neighbors begin experiencing homelessness. Can you help us understand why there is no simple answer to that question um, of why people in our community, our neighbors that are unhoused begin experiencing homelessness? First of all, thank you for including me on this panel. 
uh, I can tell you there's not one size fits all for individuals and families that are experiencing homelessness. There's many complex and intersecting factors that contribute to this. Homelessness can arise from a variety of circumstances, but fundamentally, it's a lack of appropriate affordable housing that is the reason why people are homeless. And so it's kind of, I say it's akin to uh, the child game of uh, musical chairs and, you know, with ch musical chairs, fundamentally, there's no, there's not enough chairs for everybody participating. Now, who gets a chair and who doesn't get a chair, there are contributing factors that, uh, that affect that. Maybe strength, agility, uh, savviness about going slow when you're in front of the chair and hoping the music will stop, what have you. Same thing applies to affordable housing. Yeah, there are contributing factors such as uh, financial hardship, job loss, mental or physical health issues, domestic violence, affordable housing, uh, family breakdown, many other. And then in many circumstances, combinations of those factors that contribute to it. But fundamentally, the reason why people don't have the housing in our community that they need is because there's not enough of appropriate affordable housing. And why I say appropriate, I keep on saying appropriate, is because just like any of us, like I'll use myself as an example. When I was in college, the appropriate housing I needed was a dorm room. When, uh, as I've aged, I've wanted to be in communities that like, I had my niece living with me, so I wanted to be in a community that was close to good housing, uh, I mean, good education. Now that I am thinking about retirement someday, hopefully, I want to be somewhere where if I need assisted living facilities that there's good uh, senior living facilities and resources in the community. Well, the same thing applies to our homeless uh, population, our unhoused population. Those that have substance abuse issues may need housing that has a focus on substance abuse. Those that have behavioral health issues may need those. So it's, it's not just affordable housing, it's affordable, appropriate affordable housing that's important. Also, additionally, we have systemic issues that have been brought up earlier today, economic inequality, institutionalized discrimination, and inadequate social safety nets that play a significant role in perpetuating homelessness. These factors make it harder for people to secure housing, education, employment, and, and the like. <clears throat> it's important though to recognize that each of individual and family has unique needs in their homelessness. So we have to have a nuanced and collaborative approach to addressing the root causes of that particular individual and family's needs, not just some one size fits all thing for everyone. Um, only by understanding the complexity and working collaboratively can we begin to create lasting solutions to end homelessness in our community. Thank you. Great, great, great. Matt, I'm moving over to you. Oftentimes we hear it has to be mental health. It has to be substance use, abuse disorder. That's the reason why people are unhoused. But we know that we have mental health, um, folks that are struggling with mental health issues or living with mental health issues in our general population as well, substance use that will never see homelessness or never be on the cusp of homelessness. So we know that there are no absolutes either way. Can you just unpack that? Or maybe how do you talk to individuals about understanding the larger picture outside of just those two very narrow things that they like to focus on? 
Yeah, thanks. So commonly, like you say, the issue gets conflated, right? Uh, there's a, a common misperception. There's a one-to-one -one relationship between mental health substance use struggles and homelessness. Uh, but we know that that's absolutely not the case, as you're uh, so wisely pointing out. If you look at the nation, about 30% of the individuals experiencing homelessness have a mental health and substance use disorder. So that means 60% probably don't. Uh, so if you're looking at exclusively a mental health intervention, even that is going to affect about 30% of the individuals experiencing homelessness. So you need mental health interventions for mental health problems. You need housing interventions for housing situations. So, uh, you know, when you, uh, nobody's going to just add water to their mental health medications and have an apartment pop out, right? That's not the way it works. Uh, so we know we need appropriate solutions for the, the situation that presents itself. Uh, and for uh, a lot of folks, it's the mental health uh, intervention that's helpful, uh, but it's not a housing intervention. I love how you put that, plainly put. Uh, Dr. Cullum Clark, my dear friend, earlier we did talk about those racial disparities that we see in our unhoused population. Uh, black households make up only 23% of our general population, but yet they represent 59% of our unhoused population. This disparity has gotten slightly worse over the years, byproduct of a whole lot of systemic things. Akina brought that up as well. Can you help us understand kind of the history of those inequities that contribute um, to what we're seeing here? Absolutely, and thank you, Jolie. It's really an honor to be with all of you all at this very important event. Um, so uh, I suspect the group here is kind of self-selected for uh, knowing a fair bit about the very difficult history of injustice that has given rise to the present. But nonetheless, I, I think I always find that it's, it's sort of worth revisiting it to sort of remind ourselves how we got here. So if you all will bear with me. Um, uh, the, the dead hand of history is very alive and it exercises a powerful grip on the present. Um, so uh, uh, Dallas was the first city in the state of Texas to impose explicit racial housing segregation in 1916. Um, in the New Deal era, a lot of you all will probably know, the term redlining came from literally a federal uh, homeowners loan corporation, a major New Deal program a guideline book that literally marked up maps of a bunch of American cities and characterized uh, primarily black neighborhoods in, in red line. Um, uh, part of, by the way, quick aside, a really long history of New Deal programs massively expanding the role of the federal government and carefully excluding black people from their benefits, um, which we certainly did in Dallas as well. Um, in, in Dallas, we have had a long history, including for the first couple of decades after uh, World War II, uh, of uh, city government in one form or another uh, playing a direct role in expropriating black and Hispanic people from their homes and neighborhoods in order to reuse the land for other things that, 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 were, that, were, that were priorities at the time, according to local leaders. Um, so all of this is very difficult. How does it uh, maintain a grip on the present? Uh, well, it's two simple points. One is the geographic patterns the, the, the shape of the map created by 100 years of injustice uh, doesn't change quickly. Uh, and there is a nearly perfect overlap between the history of redlining and any other, you know, sort of racially marked map that you can find from the distant past and patterns of poverty today. The other uh, big factor, of course, is that um, black families and Hispanic families, as the Hispanic population grew in Dallas, uh, we're systematically denied the ability to build generational wealth through homeownership. Um, if we connect these two things to the data we've just heard today to wrap up, 
um, I would say a couple of simple things. Um, one significant reason why uh, there's disproportionate representation, representation of black people among the unhoused today is because the, the homeownership rate, the, uh, the, just the, the, the inheritance of, of homes or ability to buy a home is so much lower among black Dallasites. Uh, homeownership's a really important force. It is a hedge against uh, all that can go wrong when, uh, with the housing markets and like rents going up a lot. Uh, and then, of course, more uh, fundamentally, all of these historical factors simply gave rise to much higher poverty rates among black as well as Hispanic populations in Dallas. And I, I'll bet you the people in the group here will agree, uh, poverty is highly predictive of just about every factor that then tends to uh, uh, create a high risk of homelessness. Yeah, great. Thank you for drawing those connections. We talk about inflow into our system. Once people have hit our homeless response system, there's a bunch of other systems that have um, often failed them or not have they haven't served them well. So some of that history does impact individuals' abilities um, to move to self-sustainability, to have that generational wealth. So thank you, uh, Dr. Colin Clark, for sharing that. Matt, we we do talk about the solution to homelessness, but we also recognize the the trauma that many of our unhoused neighbors experience. Being unhoused is traumatic. It's a traumatic event in and of itself. Um, how does the rehousing system partner with mental and behavioral health, vice versa, to create a supportive environment for our neighbors who are experiencing um, homelessness and or regaining their housing? Thanks. Uh, it, I hope it's intuitive because uh, when we work together, we end up with better results for our neighbors uh, who need uh, a housing solution. So uh, we know from national, national data that when individuals move into a, a house situation, their mental health improves. Uh, we also know that uh, when individuals are housed and you combine that housing assistance with uh, mental health supports, uh, we know that those folks are, it's easier for them to stay in their housing uh, situation. So uh, the, the data shows when we work together, when we add the supports together, that we have the outcomes that we're all looking for. Absolutely. Akenna, we talk in a lot of spaces about the kind of increasing criminalization of homelessness, right? We know we have a statewide camping ban. We know we see other policies and ordinances at the local and state level that feel like it's criminalizing and targeting homelessness specifically. Um, I have been on a panel with you where you've just talked about that, why that is the wrong strategy, why that is not helpful for the work that we try to do. Can you help um, talk a little bit about that as well? Well, First of all, being homeless is, isn't a crime. That's first and foremost. So all these uh, legislation that's coming out, it's, it's, it's kind of around the edges. Nobody's saying specifically it's illegal to be homeless, but they're saying it's illegal to stand on a median and for more than five minutes. And that's where a lot of homeless people are because they're panhandling. So that, that fundamentally, it's, it's a... Based, to make homelessness a crime is a denial of a basic human right. And we cannot do that. And, it will, it, and if we do that, it only exacerbates the, the, the problem. Okay? Secondarily, and this is for most of the people who support that, which is not this room, obviously, but <laughs> is that it's more expensive for the community to criminalize homelessness because you have the police time and you've got the, j the jail system is not an effective way to house our unhoused population. And so all, I mean, I, I think there's numerous studies that you can cite that show that 
providing supportive housing is significantly cheaper than criminalizing homelessness and putting people in house, I mean, putting people in jail. And then thirdly, when you give, when you create a system where just being homeless will lead to these petty crimes that are on your record, you make it harder for the unhoused to get housing in the future because then they have a criminal background and they're not able to, uh, so many of our uh, uh, properties won't allow them to get in because they've had all of these minor uh, criminals for vagrancy or for public intoxication or for just loitering or what have you. And so when you combine all of those things, it just doesn't make sense to criminalize homelessness. Absolutely. Thank you. Dr. Cullum Clark, we talked in prep for this panel conversation and you, you, you illustrated it very well for us when you talked about homelessness being like the tip of the iceberg. Um, in the housing crisis kind of ecosystem. Can you unpack that for all of us here today? Just describe what you mean by homelessness being the tip of the iceberg. Sure. Thank you, Julie. Um, so like the tip of the iceberg, homelessness, I would argue, uh, is the visible manifestation, the relatively small fraction of the iceberg that's showing of a vastly larger um, uh, a problem, most of which is not visible to us unless we look real closely uh, under the surface. Uh, so uh, what do I mean by that? We just, uh, we just learned today that the point in time count of 4,200 odd um, uh, unhoused people in Dallas and, and Collin County uh, a few weeks ago, a couple months, whatever it was, uh, um, uh, I would suggest that conservatively, there are at least 500,000 people in Dallas and Collin counties who are severely housing cost burdened according to federal definitions. Uh, it's a very small fraction of those who tragically actually were on the street that night because a whole lot of others were hanging on somehow. Um, so why is that so? Uh, we have had a pervasive national policy failure of epic proportions to build enough housing in America. I've had the opportunity to uh, uh, be an advisor on a national effort, a group called Up for Growth, uh, that quantified this and actually did a report that came out uh, last summer that found uh, underproduction uh, the gap between supply and demand nationally was about 4 million. Um, uh, I argued for, let's say, some methodological changes that would have, I, I think, been correct and resulted in a bigger gap. Um, so we just built too little. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I had the opportunity at the Bush Institute to interview um, Harvard economist Ed Glazer, arguably America's preeminent urban economist. Um, he's made a very good point through, a, through a years of research, decades of research, that the, the land use rules and housing market and, per, and permitting complexities that make it impossible or very difficult to build new housing or to maintain naturally affordable older housing, uh, the, all those rules have been progressively getting worse for at least 30 years in American cities. In Dallas, I think we can find abundant evidence to show that among big cities, uh, we're, I'm sorry to say, an underperformer in building new housing. We're not the most severe underperformer. We're not on the West Coast, for example, but we are an underperformer. Um, I mean, one simple statistic is as a share of population, um, the last, just the last five years before COVID, the city of Dallas uh, was uh, built relative to population about a third as many housing units as the city of Fort Worth. Um, uh, the, the reason why the Dallas-Fort Worth area remains sort of relatively affordable compared to other big metropolitan areas in the United States is because a number of suburban municipalities are among the most growth and housing friendly municipalities anywhere in America. Thank goodness for that, because if it weren't for that, we would be starting to approach West Coast levels, including in the city of Dallas. Uh, so 
so that's a pervasive problem. The one additional thing I would say is it is an economic fact that probably the at least the bottom third of the income distribution do not earn enough money to actually be able to afford um, the cheapest new home that can be constructed. And because of that, um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of a significant fact that we, we need to actually have the full toolkit of subsidized affordable housing policies in motion. All the tools need to be in the toolkit and in active use. Uh, there's some of those that we're doing an okay job, but with Dallas, there are other tools we haven't really fully uh, developed. We have an underdeveloped toolkit relative to a number of other places. Good news is, I know city council and staff are working on it. They passed a new policy yesterday. Uh, there's no question that there's a lot of momentum around trying to get better with the toolkit, uh, but we got a lot, lot of work to do. Yeah. Thank you. I love the question, if we could dream a thousand dreams, because I love to dream a thousand dreams, to solve homelessness, right? To make sure people have safe, stable housing. Anyone want to take that? Any or all of you can take that. If you could dream a thousand dreams to ensure that everyone has safe, stable housing or to solve homelessness, what would you do? What would that dream look like? What would you include in that toolbox? I guess I'll go first. <laughs> Looking at my panel partners, we all looked at each other. Um, I would say, uh, first of all, I would I think we need to address density. I don't think it, uh, in a community of the size of Dallas, we cannot have the, the speaking to what the doctor said, the number one model being a single family home because the bottom zero to 30% or zero to 50% are not gonna be able to afford a single family home. So we have to say, hey, we, can, we have to change our zoning laws to allow for density so we can have single room occupancy development. I don't think there has been a single room occupancy development in Dallas in at least a decade or two. Uh, what we have and the stock that we have has gone the wrong way. And so that's first of all. Secondarily, we have to invest in the resources of that of supportive uh, the supportive resources in our community. So I know I say this every time I'm on one of these panels, but expansion of Medicaid in Texas. I mean, we've have we expanded Medicaid during the uh, pandemic, but we j now have approximately six million people on Medicaid who are going to be dropped off this month, I believe it is, if they don't, aren't able to renew their Medicaid because they were eligible for that expansion. Every state in the country is getting there. Why Texas is behind that, it's flabbergasting me. Oklahoma is ahead of us on that. And so it's really, it's really- Why is everybody <laughs> laughing? They're a great, great place. So, the, the expansion of behavioral health care uh, resources, the expansion of uh, substance abuse resources so that people can won't ever be homeless who are suffering though from those things because they have the proper care to maintain their housing in the first place. And then lastly, I will say that, um, and I just lost my train of thought. So it's all right, I'll, it'll I'll come back it to on. you. It'll come back to you, Dr. Cullen Clark. If, unless you want to come up with that, can I, you come back in it. Right? I, can, can I offer a couple dreams? Yes, okay. please. Being, being not the most concise. Um, so uh, dream. I think let's say dream number one. I'm I'm dreaming, but I'm not so optimistic. Dream number two. I actually am rather optimistic. Okay. Uh, dream number one is about changing people's attitudes. 
Okay. Uh, I think we all know that the, that the the most powerful political reason why we don't build enough housing in America is because we have empowered, not in my backyard, sensibilities to an extraordinary degree. Now, um, I would argue, I just, this may not be a popular thing in the room, I would argue that not in my backyard thinking is, is sort of the flip side of the coin, the underside to a very natural indefensible human emotion, you know, a certain sense of wanting, wanting to care about one's surroundings and so forth and being uneasy about change. This is very human, which is why we see strong, not in my backyard sentiment everywhere, right? Uh, I think what kind of varies across cities is not so much the sentiment. I don't think we're worse on that in the city of Dallas. It is the extent to which our political system empowers that sentiment to actually rule on decisions. Um, and that is, uh, that's an area of reform. But as for, as for the actual uh, views that people have, I, I think the idea of trying to, you know, kind of convince people to change them is a noble dream. Uh, I know there are efforts to put here in, uh, in Dallas. Uh, back to Ed Glazer, he said he's been following these kind of efforts around the country and around the world for decades and basically said, you know, it's hard. And it really works so great. People just, you know, but, you know, let's dream. I mean, sometimes there are vast sea changes in how people view big issues. I think, I think we've been blessed, I would argue, to see a gigantic change in how American society views LGBTQ people. Um, uh, haven't fully arrived on that one either, but nonetheless, big changes. Maybe big changes are possible in this. So let's try, um, you know, maybe without getting carried away with optimism on that one. Uh, dream number two, though, uh, is, that we, is that perhaps Dallas is the kind of place, and maybe Dallas County and Collin County are the kind of place where we could actually become a national, a global leader in imaginatively reusing underused land all over the place. Um, uh, that uh, we could start to imagine. You know, there was a study, I'm trying to remember, a commercial real estate data organization that actually found that the city of Dallas is, uh, has the single greatest percentage of its land um, unused uh, and underused of any big city in America. Um, uh, so perhaps we could actually figure out how to go into all kinds of places where maybe the NIMBY opposition would be a little bit weaker because they are places currently zoned to do all kinds of things that basically aren't happening anymore. Um, among other things, I, I dare to dream that we actually could live to see a future where the empty office buildings of downtown, in some cases, actually get demolished and we build live, work, play environments with truly mixed income uh, housing in downtown Dallas and nearby. Yeah, love it. So, you know, and then tiny home villages with wraparound services. We got it at City Square. I've, I've just read there's one in Lake Dallas, like in a suburban location. That's pretty cool. Um, you know, maybe, just maybe, we actually could. I mean, maybe we have the enterprising spirit and the great, you know, great nonprofit ecosystem and great for-profit builders. Maybe we could actually become a leader in re reusing, recycling space into actually housing people. Let's dream for that. I love it. I love it. Matt, anything? Yeah, one dream, uh, a component of the overall dream uh, would be more peers uh, and more outreach folks. Um, I'm a big believer in the peer movement and the ability of peers to engage uh, and help individuals find recovery, right? Because that's, you know, when I think about who I listen to, I listen to people who know kind of what I've been through. So um, more peers, uh, enough peers to engage every single person that finds themselves in a, a homeless challenge situation. I think you got some amens on that one, Matt. Akina, did it come back to you? It did. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I just want if my dream is that the rainy day fund will be used for rainy day appropriate things. We've got, what, 30 plus billion in the rainy day fund in the state of Texas. We had a hurricane that wiped out Houston, which was a lot of rain. 
and they didn't use any of the rainy day fund for it, <laughs> which is like flabbergasting to me. But we've, it's not, you know, what you always hear is that we don't have the resources to address homelessness. That it's a, the pie, there's not enough pieces of the pie for it. We obviously do in Dallas and Texas specifically. And so my dream is that somebody at state level with power will say, hey, you know, we could take a couple billion of this money and give it to our major metropolitan areas where the homeless situation is the worst, and we could really impact homelessness. So that's that's the last piece. I love it. Y'all give it up for our panelists. Thank you all for joining me up here today. I loved it. We're wrapping up. We're going to talk briefly. Hey, Christine Crossley, good to see you. We're going to talk about what's next for us. Um, you've heard the pick count data. All of this data will be through a narrative, will be on our website May 1st, so you'll be able to find it there. We've talked about the successes, we've talked about the numbers that we see, we talked about where we've seen increases, we've talked about the investments over the last several years that have been made to targeted interventions and how well that is working for us in our system. I can't say enough thank yous to our Dallas and Collin County partners in this work. We will continue to do the tremendous work and work alongside those partners to make sure that every person has a safe, stable place to call home. You heard Sarah, Sarah Khan. It's an emotional experience because behind every number are people, are humans with a story of their own, with a past of their own, and with, with a future that will be supported of their own. We are today announcing an expansion of our Dallas real-time efforts. We're no longer going to be calling it dirter. We're no longer going to be calling it that. You've heard about the significant increase in the investments that we've seen pour into our system. Those investments are allowing us to do to lean into diversion, to lean into permanent supportive housing so that we can help people that are experiencing chronic unsheltered homelessness even more. And we're going to be increasing our rapid rehousing efforts because we're doing away with this Dallas real time rapid rehousing dirter situation. We're just going to be calling it the real time initiative where we're going to be able to serve six thousand individuals and families by the end of 2025. Give it up for that. This initiative will reflect a totality of our interventions. So not just rapid rehousing, but our permanent supportive housing efforts, the diversion efforts that will be increased within our system, not just to serve families, which Ellen at Family Gateway do, they do a tremendous job. We'll have us a lesson learned but also diversion for those individuals to prevent them from even entering our system, our shelter system to begin with. Thank you. I mean, give it up for that. As a community, we have proven that when we work together to align our resources and our efforts, we can and we do make progress in reducing homelessness in our community. We hope that you continue to stay connected with us. I hope that you continue to pray for us in this system and all the work that happens every day. And as we